This week, New York City's tabloids devoted space on their front pages to a certain bald-headed pop star. So we figured if they could talk trash, why can't we? Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. This morning's show is all about New York City garbage. We'll talk about the city's 20-year trash disposal plan, hear a band that uses trash to make music, and meet a man who boxes up and sells garbage he collects from city streets. All that and more coming up on Cityscape from 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. The saying goes, one man's trash is another man's treasure. But here in New York City, a Greenwich Village man is turning trash into a business opportunity. Justin Genak collects garbage on New York City streets, boxes it up, labels it, and sells it online for up to $100. It started as a marketing experiment while he was in college, and it's paid off. Over the past few years, Genak says he sold hundreds of cubes of trash. I went garbage collecting with him in the village. My name is Justin Genak, and uh, I sell garbage. I found the best time to collect trash is at the end of the day when the streets are full and uh, there's a lot to uh, choose from. There's so much trash out tonight. I think this is lip gloss? I can't really tell. Uh, got a cool look to it. Oh, here's uh, some hair ties and hair clips. That's kind of cool. Oh, someone. Oh, I like this. Half a credit card. Uh, I've sold over 900 cubes uh, since I started. My buyers come from all over. I get a lot of New Yorkers, of course, who send them to their friends and family, like here's a piece of my city. And I got a lot of people who used to live in New York who buy them. It's, you know, a little bit of a, a memory, a fond memory. Uh, and I've actually lately been getting a ton of international orders. I found that the trash gets seasonal. You know, in the, uh, in the summer I find uh, uh, you know, sunglasses and uh, broken flip-flops. And then in the winter I find little kids' mittens that fall off when they're going down the street, you know, in their strollers. Times Square is good. It has a def- definitely a different feeling than down here in the village. Uh, a lot of uh, tourist stuff and uh, a lot of playbills and McDonald's wrappers and Starbucks cups and all that. So definitely uh, the different neighborhoods have different flavor garbage. Hey, you find a lot of uh, cigarette cartons and cigarette butts around here. Uh, find a lot of, uh, let's see what we got here. This is a note from someone. I think it's a food order with uh, the delivery address on it. They wanted some, a turkey hero. It actually plays a role in somebody's life. You know, this is something that was actually used by a New Yorker or, you know, a tourist. And it, you know, tells a little bit of a story. So, you know, even like, you know, if you have a cigarette butt with a little bit of lipstick on it or a coffee cup, you know, when you have these items put together in a cube, you can kind of try to figure out the story on your own of who had this and what they were doing. And it played a role in somebody's day. So it's an actual living piece of the city. Justin Genak sells garbage through his website, nycgarbage.com. While trash is putting money in Justin's pocket, it's burning a hole in the cities. Disposing of trash costs money, and for decades it's been the subject of political squabbles and community uproar. Joining us now in the studio is Benjamin Miller. He's the author of Fat of the Land, Garbage of New York, The Last 200 Years. Benjamin is also a research associate with Columbia University's Earth Engineering Center. Benjamin, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Just last week, after the snow and ice storm here in New York City, the sanitation department fell behind on trash pickup. The garbage started to pile up in many neighborhoods throughout the city, and that's when people started to complain. 
It would appear to me that few people think about trash until it becomes a problem. Would you say that's a fair assessment here in the city? That's absolutely true, and it's unfortunate because that allows us to uh, continue to deal with our trash in rather unthoughtful ways until some crisis arises. Unthoughtful ways. Where in history have we seen unthoughtful ways? The history of New York's waste management tends to be that long periods of relatively uninterrupted patterns that are suddenly interrupted by crises that are usually political or, or legal uh, in origin, and uh, then it bounces us into a different way of handling things. And uh, when these transitions are not made in a planned fashion, as they never have been, uh, it produces real disruptions, particularly economic ones. And we tend to pay enormously more for waste management than we need to. And, of course, then there are also environmental impacts because things are not handled in the most environmentally benign ways. Mayor Bloomberg rolled out a 20-year trash disposal plan. The city council approved that plan. That, of course, followed the closing of the Fresh Kills landfill on Staten Island in 2001. Now, when that landfill closed, there was no plan, correct? That's right. Uh, the decision was made in 1996 to close the Fresh Kills landfill, even though it had about 50 years of capacity, with no plan for what to do next. Not a good situation. Thrusting New York for the first time in its history on the kindness of strangers, depending on the kindness of strangers, because until 2001, virtually all of New York's waste had always been disposed of within the city limits. After 2001, virtually all of our waste has been disposed of outside the city limits, exported to states like Pennsylvania and Virginia at enormous cost. Staten Islanders, though, of course, for years had complained about this landfill, that it was really a thorn in their side. It caused environmental problems for them. The Freshkills landfill had been in Staten Island since 1948, and certainly Staten Islanders felt that uh, it was unfair for them to be receiving all of the city's garbage. However, uh, at the point that it was closed, uh, there had been recently, within that prior decade, and in fact less than a decade, hundreds of millions of dollars spent on environmental improvements. So actually, substantively speaking, it was one of the best-run uh, landfills in the country. Uh, so I believe that it, it, the future of Fresh Kills would have been different than Fresh Kills past, which certainly did uh, generate complaints about odors and so on. Those were declining very dramatically uh, toward the end because the environmental improvements were being felt. Fresh Kills landfill was a product of Robert Moses, wasn't it? That's correct. Uh, it's part, it was part of his, uh, as I say, in Fatherland's secret plan to build the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. He needed it. Uh, to, he needed the land for his West Shore Expressway, uh, which was an access road for the bridge, and he needed the fill uh, to save some money on uh, bridges and so on in that swampy area. I want to talk more about Robert Moses in a little while because clearly he plays a large role in the city's garbage history. But I want to talk right now about the mayor's current plan, mm -hmm. the 20-year plan for garbage disposal. This plan calls for the development of waste transfer stations throughout the city, right? That's correct. It's a big step forward over the current situation because the current situation, uh, A, we're paying a million dollars a day more to dispose of our waste than we were before Fresh Kills closed. B, there are more than a million extra truck miles run in the city every year because trucks from all over the city have to go to private transfer stations that are located primarily in the South Bronx or in northern Brooklyn. And there are hundreds of truck miles, tractor-truck miles uh, burned every year, taking our stuff to Pennsylvania and rail miles taking it to Virginia. So it's really the, the worst of all possible worlds. The Bloomberg plan is a big improvement because it creates more transfer stations, more rationally dispersed. So it will cut truck miles within the city by a million or more a year. It will also cut truck miles outside the city because it will require private carters to transfer waste to barges or to rail cars instead of tractor-trailer trucks. So to that extent, it's a big improvement over the existing situation. 
On the other hand, it's only half a plan because it only takes us as far as a transfer station. It doesn't say anything about what happens after that. There are three problems that remain. Uh, One is the price. Uh, Since we have no control over any waste disposal facility, we're dependent on the kindness of strangers. These strangers really haven't been very kind, and the price is going up every year. It's going up about the rate of 300 full-time employees a year, which in a good year like this one, economically, we can manage. But in a bad year, which inevitably will come, we'll have to lay off people because we can't stop exporting our garbage. The second problem is with environmental impacts. We're landfilling most of our waste right now. Waste from the west side of Manhattan is taken to an energy recovery facility in Newark, which is clearly preferable to what we're doing with the rest of our waste. But the majority is being landfilled, which is certainly the most significant source of greenhouse gas from waste management. It creates water pollution, which therefore means that there can be potential public health impacts. It permanently destroys the land that is landfilled. It depletes other resources. And these landfills tend to be far away, which produces transportation impacts. The third problem is that although the in-city transfer system is better than the current one, it's still not as good as it could be in terms of reducing miles and reducing costs. This plan only deals with residential garbage, though, right? Not commercial? That's correct. And of course, that means we've got more than half the problem to deal with. Uh, So that's another thing that the mayor's plan really needs to address. In New York City, low-income and minority neighborhoods have long complained that they've had to bear the brunt of the city's garbage disposal issues because they are home to some of these transfer stations. But is that a valid complaint? Have they had to bear the brunt? Well, that's not exactly true. Uh, historically, the, we've relied on marine transfer stations. That is to say, we've dumped into barges because we took the waste to sea a long time ago in the 19th century, and in fact, up until 1934 on occasion. Uh, and since then, we've used so-called marine landfills, such as fresh kills on Staten Island, where most of the waste was delivered by barge. And these marine transfer stations were relatively well dispersed across the city. In fact, there's a very famous one right now at East 91st Street, very near Gracie Mansion. So that's uh, certainly not a low-income neighborhood. There is a is one at 59th Street, West 59th Street, which is not a low-income neighborhood. There's one at Gansevoort Street in the village, which is not a low-income neighborhood. So they were fairly rationally dispersed uh, from the beginning just because we were always trying to minimize uh, truck miles. In the old days, of course, there was horse trucks. Um, but it, you know, not dispersing these things makes sense. So the marine transfer station system uh, wasn't really unfair to uh, poor neighborhoods in that way. The situation became worse after the decision to close fresh kills because private carters located transfer stations rather than the city. It's really a city responsibility to make decisions like this rather than throwing it up like a jump ball and letting the private sector take it wherever it's easiest to drive it. Of course, it's easiest for the private sector to locate in industrial neighborhoods uh, where they can more easily uh, gain access to property and more easily build these things. So it it follows a natural... water flowing downhill to the lowest level. I read recently that Los Angeles is moving ahead with waste-to-energy facilities. How come New York hasn't looked into building waste-to-energy facilities? Is that a viable option? It certainly is. It's it's what we should be doing. It's uh, enormously better for the environment than landfilling. Uh, It certainly reduces our dependence on foreign oil. And very importantly, we could locate these things, if not inside the city, much nearer the city, as in the case of Newark. There there are places we could get to without posing the environmental impacts that transporting our waste hundreds of miles causes. Besides the Fresh Kills landfill, what other facilities in New York City were closed before a plan was in place to deal with the city's trash? The first major system, in a way, started on Barron Island, which is uh, now part of Gateway National Recreation Area in Jamaica Bay. It was a set of uh, factories where garbage was cooked up 
made into grease and nitroglycerin and fertilizer. And, and those factories started operating in about 1852 and continued operating until about 1916. They were shut off very suddenly. Uh, and actually, there was a, a temporary plan there. They were shut off because uh, some new guys had a new plant that they built exactly on the, on the site of Fresh Kills Landfill. In fact, those buildings are still there and were used to operate the landfill. That plant was shut down overnight by a new mayor who was elected partly on the promise to deal with that facility with, a, with an iron fist. And he did, even though it was during World War I. And uh, Food Secretary Hoover came to the city from Washington begging him to keep it open because the Belgians were reliant on the grease that was coming from that plant. The Allies were reliant on the nitroglycerin that was being produced by that plant. But, the, but Mayor Highland had promised uh, Staten Islanders that he would close it down. He shut it down overnight. And overnight, we started dumping our garbage back in the ocean which was against federal law and had been since 1888. New Jersey sued us naturally because some of the stuff washed up on their beaches. And 16 years later, after it had finally risen to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court ordered New York City out of the ocean on July 1st, 1934. We beat the deadline by two days and got out and on June 29th, but with no plan and started piling it on Rikers Island, which is a place that had been used since the late 1880s, early 1890s. Rikers Island was twice its footprint and was 140 feet high. It was a mountain that was uh, on which uh, little funicular railroads uh, chugged uh, to dump their waste, uh, and it was smoking in... uh, in uh, the sound there. And that was closed only because Robert Moses insisted that it be closed because he was about to open a World's Fair there. So each time there has been a a change, we'd just jump into something else. Then Moses started landfilling uh, all over the place. Uh, And he had at one point 89 landfills. And they were little tiny landfills, but he was using them as fill material in in the parks and parkways that he was building. So there have been these major disruptions and we just moved someplace else and it generally cost us more money. Although we did landfilling very cheaply in New York for uh, decades. So uh, we it really was very economical for the city and if if not uh, the best for the environment, although in the long run, I don't think it was, we can say that it was particularly bad for the most part. A lot of New York City is built on garbage, courtesy of Robert Moses. That's right. Orchard Beach, what else? Well, if you look around the periphery of all the boroughs, uh, you can just imagine that a lot of that is fill. About 25% of Manhattan is fill. Now, not all of that is flat-out garbage. And some of it is stuff dredged from our shipping channels. Uh, Some of it is material that was excavated from the World Trade Center's foundation, for example. Uh, There certainly is excavation fill. But a reasonable proportion is garbage. That's for a number of reasons. One, in the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, the city got rid of a lot of its shorefront land. Private owners had a real incentive to make more shorefront land because we were a maritime economy. And so shorefront was seven times more valuable than inland. So naturally, uh, people are going to let garbage accumulate there, allow private carters just to come in and take garbage themselves. So there was a lot of real estate development, quote unquote. And certainly that continued into the uh, early 20th century in uh, Brooklyn particularly and also parts of Queens, also parts of the Bronx uh, where real estate speculators and developers were purposely using waste, as we were also doing uh, to some extent in New Jersey as well along the shore. People were happy to accept uh, New York waste uh, along certain portions of the Jersey Shore. For instance, uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad, which was building big piers uh, in Hoboken and Greenville. Were there ever any particular problems associated with building on top of trash? It's not the best building material in the world, as you can well imagine. It's gotten worse as a building material over time. Earlier on, you may be aware of the Ashcan School of uh, New York art. They were called Ashcans in the old days because they were filled predominantly with ash. Uh, we burned 
uh, wood as fuel uh, in the 17th and 18th century, and, and by the mid-19th century, we were relying on coal, but coal also produced a great deal of ash. So in all of our energy, virtually all of our energy uh, from the from the 1850s through the 1940s was produced by burning coal, uh, which produced majority you know, was, was the largest single component of New York's waste. And of course, coal ash, uh, while not entirely benign, uh, is relatively solid at least, and uh, you can use it uh, as a reasonable foundation to the extent that you get more and more putrescible material, organic, rottable waste. You cause decomposition, and it, it really isn't a very firm foundation. But over time, of course, all of that stuff settles. So it's uh, it has worked reasonably well in many areas of the city, but there are certainly areas that have been problematic and continue to be. Uh, LaGuardia Airport, for example, uh, it was built almost entirely on fill. Some of that fill was mined from Rikers Island and brought over on pontoon bridges by the WPA during the Depression. Uh, those runways have been settling and, and are settling to this day, uh, and they caused real problems in the past. Um, so it's, it's not ideal, but as you see, we've managed to work with it for the most part. Today, Fresh Kills Landfill is on a course to become a sprawling park. What do you think of that idea? Well, if it's going to be closed, uh, of course, that's what we should do because there's nothing else we can do with it. Of course, there won't even be a park uh, all, over all its area until 30 years have passed because it won't be safe for people to walk on it without moon suits. There'll be parts of the landfill where filling has not taken place, where that will not be true. But in the highest areas where the garbage is over 100 feet high, uh, there will have to be precautions taken for years to come. The heat of the decomposing garbage will be such that you couldn't use it for a a ski lift. Uh, You couldn't use it for building any kinds of buildings or facilities. Even uh, asphaltic playground things would be problematic as as the runways at uh, LaGuardia were. But for hiking trails and so on, they'll certainly will be able to, I'm sure that they will be able to create a beautiful park there with with natural landscaping and and native grasses and so on and and put enough topsoil on it so it'll be a safe facility. But it won't be and it will be beautiful just because it'll be the highest uh, point uh, and, and offer vistas and it'll be open space. But it's not land that could be used for agriculture or, or for building. Uh, it'll be open space. Uh, so it's certainly the highest and best use for it. Benjamin Miller, thanks so much for your time. You're very welcome. Benjamin Miller is the author of Fat of the Land, Garbage of New York, The Last 200 Years. He's also a research associate with Columbia University's Earth Engineering Center. For most of us, when we finish a tub of yogurt, we toss it in the recycling bin, right? If we see a can of chickpeas in the garbage, what do we do? We keep on walking. And a stick is, well, just a stick. But to some, these are the building blocks for a musical ensemble. Kim Iacono and Kenny Wallison are local musicians who incorporate trash and found objects into their performances. They've also run a series of workshops in local schools helping kids make music from recycled materials. We recently visited Kenny's apartment to speak with him and Kim about their instruments and their various projects. Kenny is playing a Vuhan saxophone, but I don't know if it is... It's a hybrid of a saxophone that to me sounds a little bit more like a didgeridoo. It involves a film canister that 
everybody throws away film canisters. And then you and you take a straw and you make some holes and you put you know drill some holes in the film canister. And then you get any kind of tubing that will fit into the canister. And this one, it could be anything, any 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 kind of tubing that you find on the street. And I put a balloon on top. You cut the balloon and you make it make it that the balloon is kind of like the reed, the kind of thing that m makes the thing vibrate. So it's it's done in such a way that you, that the, the mouth the mouthpiece, which is the straw and the film caster, goes on the tube with the balloon. Instruments that are made out of garbage. It's a, every time is like a little different. You get a different little piece. It's every time it's a little different sound. You know, so it's it's not always the same. So it's always a surprise what's what's going to come up. We have get-togethers where we invite people to come and collect found items, and we make things like birabiras and handmade marimbas made out of wood that's found, maracas made out of tin cans, and we use lots of thrown-away water bottles and soda bottles. There is real music being played because we have amazing horn players and uh, great musicians come out with us, but there is incredible sounds that are made, woven in throughout all of the melodies and harmonies and rhythms by everyone. This one's called a bira bira, or sometimes it's called a hoi hoi. It has different names. But it's basically a cup of any kind of... It could be any kind of cup. I, right now I have a plastic cup that somebody threw away. And uh, <clears throat> I just string, and then there's a little stick to the string. There's a, there's a trick with the bira bira is about the rosin and, and the exact way that the string is tied around the handle, which makes it swing smoothly around the handle. These instruments, they're also really fun when a lot of people are playing them together. Collectively, they, they, they make a sound that's, you know, the, just the sum of the parts, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, it is. It, there's something very spiritual about them. You're creating an object, you're, you know, that people throw away, and you're making it something very special that people want to have. And you know, something that gets thrown away all of a sudden gets transformed with a little decoration and a little love and a little music into something that's really valuable and cherished. And this is something I just made uh, last night, and I, it's it's just it's basically I it's kind of like a a can a giant can it used to be a chickpea can. And then a stick and then and a piece of rope, and it's basically like a little guitar, one-string guitar or something like that. I could go down a street and I see like some like a, a piece of like a, a lamp frame that people just they just throw on the street, but to me, I pick it up and you, you play it a certain kind of way with a certain kind of mallet. It's, it could be a gong. It could be this amazing sounding instrument. You know, I have a lot, tons of stuff that's just people throwing away. You know, bells, bird cage holders. They make great stands for instruments. You know, that reminds me of the work that we do with kids. One of the things that the kids have expressed the most appreciation and happiness about is how amazing and interesting 
and knew the idea of taking something that was garbage and making it into something that they can play, that impresses their friends, that they can show their family, and that they can teach others. We have here some thank yous from the last class that we did with kids at PS30 in the Bronx. So this is one from one of our rappers who was incredibly creative. The card says, intro, thank you. Tim, Kim, Kenny, Jennifer, for showing us how to make music out of junk. And he drew a picture of the bira bira, the marimba, the shaker, and the balloon saxophone. And on the inside it says, The way you all put your heads together, all of you can be unstoppable. And the music you make is out of this universe. Thank you for teaching me how to make stuff and for showing me that you can make everything out of anything. Thank you so much. That's from Edgar and he drew all of the instruments on the front. Thank you for showing me and my class how to make instruments with tools we see every day. Wow, I can make instruments without going to a store and buying instruments with crazy prices. Sincerely, Ashley. That's Kim Iacono and Kenny Wallison demonstrating their balloon saxophone, tin can guitar, and other trash-based instruments. You're listening to 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This is Cityscape, and today's show is all about trash. Before we go, we can't resist the opportunity to revisit one of our favorite Cityscape pieces of all time, a profile of Andrew Macchio, the singing sanitation worker. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that a flag was still there. My name is Andrew Macchio. I've been working with the Department of Sanitation for nearly 23 years. I'm in my 23rd year now. I've always sung behind the truck as I'm working. I have to. It's what gets me through my job. My job isn't glamorous. Uh, It keeps my mind off what I'm dealing with, number one. Keeps my mind off my problems. From when I was a child, I've sung from when I wake up in the morning till I go to bed at night, and I sing all day. All somebody has to do is they might say something. They might come out with a cliche or uh, even a phrase, a regular, uh, you know, everyday phrase, and it might trigger off, you know, a song. I've got to be me. What else can I be but what I am? You know, I hope I put a smile on somebody's face as they're walking to the subway, as they're walking to work, take their mind off their problems, get them to sing or even to hum or whistle. And one woman just tapped me on the shoulder. I turned around and and all she had to say was, you put a smile on my face. That makes my day, believe it or not. If I can do this for somebody else, I don't despair in the fact that I'm not helping somebody. My name is Lou Santora. I work for the New York City Department of Sanitation. Uh, I have 24 years on a job. This is the route we do every day. We march up and down 65th Street, me and Andrew. Picking up New York City's trash. We like our job. It's a good job. We have a lot of fun working together, me and Andrew. That far away prize. A lot of times in the morning I'll say, come on, Andrew, sing a song. It's a nice thing he does. A lot of people stop, 
and applaud and clap. And you know, they say that he's terrific. A guy this morning said, oh, you ought to be singing at Yankee Stadium. I could never pursue a singing career because, believe it or not, I have stage fright. I'll go it alone. That's how it must be. I never liked working in an office. I just didn't like the confinement. Just being out here in the in the outdoors is it's wonderful. You know, even though I'm not breathing such healthy air because I'm behind the truck, I'm behind cars that are stopped right by us. But still, I love being behind the truck. I love the physical work of it. It keeps me going. You meet people. Dare to try to do it or die. I've gotta be me. I like being up, especially when it's the morning and it's still a little dark, and gradually it gets lighter and lighter and lighter. The brighter the sky gets, the quicker I am to being done, because I know it's almost quitting time. I've got to be free. I've got to be free. Daring to try to do it or die. I've got to be me. That's Andrew Macchio, New York's very own singing sanitation worker. And that brings us to the end of this week's show. Thanks so much for listening. Like any responsible New Yorker, we here at WFUV don't just throw things on top of the garbage pile. We recycle. So this and every cityscape is archived online at WFUV.org, where you can also find out about our podcast. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Jody Avergan. Have a great weekend. <laughs>